0: Well, we are in the book of Leviticus today, which can be a challenging book to read, to understand, to know how to apply. I think one reason is because it doesn't have much narrative, like we saw in Genesis and like we saw in the first half of Exodus. It's largely law. It's largely instruction. Uh, but the Bible says that all Scripture is inspired by God and profitable. So therefore, Leviticus is profitable for us. And one of my goals this morning is to show you how. And so I'm going to ask you to please turn in your Bibles to Leviticus chapter 9. If you are able, I'm going to ask you to please stand in honor of the reading of God's Word. I'm going to begin reading in chapter 9, verse 22. I'm going to read through chapter 10, verse 3. And this is the very inspired Word of God. Then Aaron lifted up his hands toward the people and blessed them. And he came down from offering the sin offering and the burnt offering and the peace offerings. And Moses and Aaron went into the tent of meeting, and when they came out, they blessed the people, and the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the pieces of fat on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which He had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them. And they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, This is what the Lord has said. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified. And before all the people, I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. Let's pray. Father, we pray You'll bless the reading of Your Word this morning and the reading of Your Word as we read together through through the Bible. As a church, uh, help us now to come to see you in your holiness. May we be holy as you are holy for your glory. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So the word Leviticus means uh, things concerning Levites. And this is a book for all of God's people, but it is in particular a book about the Levites and what their role is. And uh, it kind of raises the question, who, who are who are Levites? And if you remember, there was this significant promise that came to Abraham. Abraham dies, the promise passes to his son Isaac. Isaac dies, the promise passes to his son Jacob, whose name gets changed to Israel. And Israel has 12 sons. These 12 sons become the 12 tribes of Israel. One of the sons, named Judah, is the tribe through whom the Messiah will come. Sometimes God's people are referred to as Jews, and it comes from this word Judah, this name Judah. Another one of the tribes is the tribe called Levi. And the Levites had this particular responsibility to serve God in the temple and to be priests. They weren't all priests. Not all Levites are priests, but the priesthood during this period of time comes from this tribe called the Levites. And Aaron is the first Levitical priest, and his two sons are there with him, uh, to be to be the first priest. And so the promises that were made to Abraham in Genesis 12 that we said are so significant to the storyline of the Bible are starting to come to fruition. You're starting to see many, many descendants. Uh, they've been rescued in a powerful way from Exodus, and now they're about to take the land. Uh, but But God wants them to recognize they're doing it under His authority. They're doing it under His kingship, and ultimately the goal is that He is made known as the king among all the nations, and that's how all the nations get blessed. But in order for this to happen, God has to be present among His people. And this poses a significant challenge and problem because He is holy, and they are not. They are sinful. And we saw an example of this last week. After they have just received the Ten Commandments, commandment number one, no other gods, what do they do? They, They build a golden calf, and we see this pattern of sin and rebellion is just right there in the human heart. We also saw, significantly, at the end of Exodus, the glory of God comes down on the tabernacle, the presence of God, and it says even Moses is excluded and unable to go. So this is the problem. How is this going to work? How can a holy God dwell among a sinful people? And the book of Leviticus really answers that question. Here's how that's going to work. Here's what that's going to look like. And so the the word holy, we see something like 92 times... In this book, we see the phrase before the Lord 60 times in this book because it's about how do God's people live before Him. We see the the, the phrase tent of meeting 41 times, which is the tabernacle and it's going to eventually become the temple. But it's referred to as a tent of meeting. Why? It's the place where God meets with His people. That's the significance. How does the Holy God meet with, dwell among His people? And what are they to do in order to continue to have this presence of God and this blessing from God. I think a key verse is Leviticus 26.12 where God says, I will walk among you and I will be your God and you shall be my people. This book is about how God walks among them and how they are to be His people even though He's holy and they are sinners. I want to point out three keys from the book. First of all, God is holy. Five times we see God saying, you be holy for I am holy. And I think it's only right and only helpful to begin with the holiness of God. This is, this is where holiness begins for us. The holiness of God. Uh, of course, First Peter is going to repeat this. First 1 Peter 1.16, be holy, for God is holy. And it raises the question, what exactly does it mean that God is holy? There are two aspects to His holiness. The first aspect is the one that I think we're most familiar with. His, his holiness involves His moral purity. He is pure. He's morally righteous. He has no sin. He is separate from sin. He's removed from sin. He's holy. But the second aspect of God's holiness is an aspect that we maybe don't quite articulate as much or think about as much. Theologians refer to this as His majestic holiness. Holiness. This refers to the fact that he is, he is very much other than. He's very much other than the rest of his creation. He's wholly other, W-H-O-L-L-Y. He's very different. He's set apart. He's, he, this, is, this is a reference to the godness of God. He's holy. And, and some theologians have actually suggested that while all the attributes are, are equally important and equally true of God and he's a unified being, perhaps the holiness of God is the most fundamental and I think they say this for a couple of reasons. One, the holiness of God can actually be used to describe all the other attributes of God. His holy love, His holy wrath, His holy justice, His holy wisdom. No other attribute of God can can define and qualify His other attributes like that. Also, in the Bible, God is referred to three times as holy. He is holy, holy, holy. It's a great emphasis. You don't ever see Him referred to as love, love, love. Or merciful, merciful, merciful. Or wrath, wrath, wrath. You do see Him referred to as holy, holy, holy. And I think we get a glimpse of His holiness here in this passage. Leviticus chapter 9, when they offer this sacrifice to God for the first time in the tabernacle. It's an inauguration worship service. And look at Leviticus chapter 9, verse 24. It says, Fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the pieces of fat on the altar, and when all the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. They have an experience of God that causes them to fall on their faces. Very similar to Moses. When he sees the burning bush, Exodus 3, it says he trembles before the presence of God. And he says, who am I? It's very similar to the experience of Isaiah in Isaiah 6 when he sees the king seated on his throne and the train of his robe filled the temple with glory. And the seraphim said, holy, holy, holy. And how does Isaiah respond to this appearance? He responds by saying, woe is me. And and think about the picture of the seraphim in Isaiah 6. They have two wings specifically created by God, designed by God for them to be able to cover their eyes. Why is that significant? Because these creatures created to be in the presence of God have to have wings to cover their eyes because they can't behold the glory of God. And here's God's people seeing Him in His holiness, and how do they respond? They fall on their faces. Why? They can't even bear to see it. God in His holiness is so separate from us, it can't even be looked upon in some sense. And this is why God has this special place within the temple where His presence dwells in a unique way. It's called the Holy of Holies. Not the holy place, the most holy place. It's distinct from even the holy place. And it's the place where the, only one priest goes and only once a year. It's, it, God is separate from. And he, he's, he's sending us this message. I'm very different from, I'm very separate from, I am holy. And therefore He expects His people to recognize this and to make Him known as the holy God that He is. And we see His holiness when the people don't. And we have this incredible story in Leviticus 10 where Aaron's two sons, it says in verse 1, they offered a strange fire or an unauthorized fire which God had not commanded them. And and we would love to know what exactly did this look like? What exactly was it that they did? And it doesn't tell us and therefore I assume we don't need to know. Uh, and there are different theories. But the point is this. They did it in a way that God had not prescribed. That's the main point. They did something or didn't do something that God had prescribed and therefore the same fire that had just previously consumed the sacrifice is the same fire that now consumes them. And they die. And Moses gives the explanation. Verse 3, God wants to be sanctified by His people. That's an interesting word. Sanctified. It's, very, it's synonymous with holy. He wants to be sanctified or set apart or seen as holy by his people. And he takes it seriously. And God's people are going to see his holiness and they're going to experience his holiness in one of two ways. Either as they properly bring the sacrifice and he accepts it. Or as they improperly bring the sacrifice and his holiness takes them out. Literally. And I, I, this phrase has stuck with me this week. Verse 3, Aaron held his peace. Can you imagine? You, you get to be a part of the inaugural worship service in the tabernacle. You've just presented the sacrifice, the fire of God, the, the holiness of God a seen, the people fall on their faces, a most incredible experience, and you get to be a part of it. You're the first Levitical priest, and you get to be a part of it with your two sons. Wow. And God strikes him dead day one. And Aaron held his peace. Would you? Would you hold your peace? Like, no complaining. No questioning. He's God, I'm not. We learned a very important lesson here. It's not about Aaron. It's not about Aaron's sons. It's not about Moses. It's not about the people. It's not about us. It's about God. It's about His holiness. And He will be seen as the Holy God. And by the way, in case you're saying, well, yeah, but, I mean, this is Leviticus and this is the Old Testament. We don't really see this in the New Testament. Well, actually, read it. (laughs) Acts chapter 5. On the inauguration day, the church is just taking off and, you know, everything's going great and it's wonderful. And there happens to be two people who lie to the apostles and God strikes them dead. And they have to carry their bodies out. And it's very similar, very reminiscent to carrying out the bodies of, of Aaron's sons. And what's the point? God wants to be seen, especially by His people, as the holy God that He is. I, I, I've heard a little bit buzz this past week about this cartoon that's airing once a week on television. It's on the FX channel, which happens to be owned by Disney. It debuted August 25, and the, this cartoon is called Little Demon. And I heard enough about it where I said, i got to look this up. So I looked it up on IMDB, International Movie Database. All right, just curious, what is this about? And I'm not going to go into all the detail. That would not be edifying here. Let me just give you the description that IMDB gives of this cartoon called Little Demon. After being impregnated by the devil, a reluctant mother and her antichrist daughter attempt to live an ordinary life in Delaware. So this is a cartoon about a mother and her daughter trying to live an ordinary life, and her daughter is literally the Antichrist, a child of Satan. So application number one, don't watch the TV show. All right, If you don't hear anything else, just don't watch the show. But here's the real point I want to make here. There used to be some attempt to avoid the profane on television. Right? There was no profanity, for example. There was even a time, some of you remember it better than I do, when they wouldn't even you know, show or depict married couples as sleeping in the same bed on television. And, and, and I've, I've, I've read where it was a pretty big deal in the 70s, the early 70s, when this TV show All in the Family flushed a toilet on TV for the first time. It was the first time on TV when a toilet was flushed, and that made a splash. I mean, that made the headlines. You know? Something as profane as that was allowed to be seen and considered entertainment, and and needless to say, you, you know the envelope has been pushed, <laughs> big time. And today, you know, you almost can't watch TV without profanity, at the very least, right? And they just it, every, I mean, they're just pushing the envelope constantly. Tons of explicit content, scandalous content is it, all over. And and I want to make the point here that we're now at a whole new level, and it's not like it's just new, but it's just a reality when they actually are going after the sacred. It's not just a promotion of what's profane. It's now a going after what's actually sacred and and, and mocking it and turning it into satire. And by the way, Saturday Night Live has been doing this for years. And there's not a lot we can do about it. There's not a lot we can do to, to impact or change that, but there is a lot we can do to make sure that we are continuing to make a distinction between what's profane and what's sacred in our church. And in our homes. And that's a, a big role of ours. In our church and in our homes to continue to recognize there is what's profane, which literally means outside of the temple. There's what's profane and there's what's sacred. And we are the people who are supposed to be making God known as the sacred, holy God that He is. And I, I really have a concern that a lot of Christians and a lot of Christian churches have at the very least sort of ignored this. Ignored the fact that this is who we are. We are the people who sanctify God, set Him apart and recognize Him as the Holy King that He is and make Him known as the Holy King that He is. Because God's holiness hasn't changed. He's just as holy today as He was in Leviticus 9 and 10. He's no less holy today. He's no less committed and serious about His own holiness and being seen as the holy God that He is. And, and, and there's no significant difference in our role as His people. We are the ones who are to make Him known and to set Him apart and sanctify Him in this sense. To make Him known as the holy King that He is. And this brings us to the second point that I want to highlight from the book, and that is, we are called to be holy. I said earlier five times in the book, He says, be holy as I am holy. We focused on the as I am holy part. Now we're going to focus on the be holy part. And by the way, Peter repeats this. Be holy as God is holy. For example, Leviticus 11, verse 45, he says, For I am the Lord who brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. Therefore, you shall be holy for I am holy. What does holiness mean for us? It's got the same two connotations. First of all, we are to be pure. We are to be set apart. We are to be morally pure, morally righteous, and growing in that. We're never perfectly pure and righteous in this life. So we're we're growing in it. We're constantly becoming more holy. And secondly, what does it mean? It means we are the ones who are to be about making God known as the holy king that He is. And we are devoted and passionate about God being seen as the the set-apart, holy other King who He is. And in Leviticus 10, we learn that the priests play this very significant role in verses 10 and 11 where they are to help the people distinguish between what is holy and what is common. What is clean and what is unclean. And they're supposed to teach the people, instruct the people. That's one of their significant roles. They're like teachers. Teach the people. What's the difference between holy and common? And by the way, they don't come up with this. I'm not sure any human could come up with these laws. And you know, it's one of the apologetics for the book of Leviticus. How could you explain this other than surely only God could have given this to them? And he did. Th- 30 times it says, uh, the Lord spoke to Moses. And then Moses proceeded to speak to Aaron and the, the priests and tell them these laws. And by the way, write them down so we have them here before us. And it involves various sacrifices. There are various sacrifices. There are various festivals or holy days, what we often call holidays. That's where the word holiday came from, holy days. It involves various laws. And these laws can be very confusing for us as Christians today. What do we do with these? How do we understand these? And, you know, I only have a limited amount of time, so I can only say so much. So I just want to make a few observations about these laws that I think hopefully will be helpful. First of all, There are not many places in Leviticus where he gives us the reason or the explanation for the law. I'm giving you this law because of this. And therefore, I don't think we should spend all our time making all these conjectures about why he might have given them the law. If he just gives them the law, sometimes you just just hold your peace like Aaron and you just take the law. Now there are a few times where he says, here's why. I'm giving you this law and here's why. And I think we should really lean into those. Because that gives us an insight. For example, one of the reasons he gives us about talking about the blood. Chapter 17, verse 11, he says, because the life is in the blood. Don't drink the blood, don't eat the blood, because life is in the blood. And we learn this very important principle. The life of a creature is in its blood. And that's going to be very significant because it's going to be the blood that's going to be poured out, that's going to atone for the sins of the people. The people are sinners. They deserve death. But God is creating this object lesson, a powerful object lesson. There has to be life loss. There has to be bloodshed to to be a substitution to cover, to atone for sin. And that's going to be very significant. Um, There's also these categories of clean and unclean. And, and sometimes it talks about people as being clean or unclean. And sometimes it's difficult for us because we, we equate cleanness and uncleanness with moral and immoral, and that's not always the right distinction to make. Clean and unclean doesn't always mean right, wrong, or, or moral, immoral. Let me just give a couple examples. It says when a woman has a child, when she gives birth to a child, she's considered ceremonially unclean. Well, that's not the Bible's way of saying there's something bad about having a child. In fact, the Bible says just the opposite. Be fruitful and multiply and have all kinds of children. Right? That's the command. There's nothing wrong with having children, but there is a period of time afterward for, for to, to wait until you're considered clean and therefore can come back to the tent of meeting. And to be with God's people and to be at the, the temple with God's people. Another example, you know, you, you become unclean when you touch a corpse. That's not saying, therefore, don't ever touch a corpse. You know, if it's your loved one, and and you come in contact with the body, you're not in sin over that. That's not God saying you're a sinner by touching the body. It's a category, ceremonially unclean, and therefore need to go through a period of time and a certain washing, ritualistic washing, before you come back. And so I think the best way to think about this is, is it basically God's teaching His people, I get to prescribe the terms by which you can come before me. I'm inviting you to come to the tent of meeting, and you can come, but I get to say who comes and when and how and what's involved and what's required. He gets to call the shots. And we learned that lesson powerfully with Aaron's first two sons. They don't come according to God's prescription. What exactly did they do? We don't know. And it doesn't really matter how you feel about it. Like, well, that just feels unfair to me. (laughs) Aaron held his peace. You're supposed to hold your peace. It's not about how you feel about it. It's not about do you think it's fair or not. It's not about does it seem archaic or bloody and I just don't like blood. It's not about that. God gets to prescribe the way in which if His people are going to live as His people and He's going to be present with them, he He gets to prescribe the way. And that's what He's doing. One of the purposes of the law was to distinguish God's people from the surrounding nations in particular Egypt and in particular Canaan, the land where they're going. And God is very concerned with this. Listen, for example, to Leviticus eighteen three through 4 You shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt where you lived, and you shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan to which I am bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. You shall follow my rules and keep my statutes and walk in them. I am the Lord your God. I think this is largely the reason behind the dietary laws. God gives His people a special menu. You eat these things, you don't eat those things. Why? He wants them to be distinct from Egypt and Canaan. And He doesn't want them to eat at the table with Egyptians and Canaanites. If you eat with someone, you tend to fellowship, you tend to become like them, and they tend to wear off on you, and you know, there's a bond there. And, and it's a specific command. I'm going to give you a unique, specific diet menu and that's going to cause you to be separate from them in the way you eat. And your eating habits are going to drive how much you're around them and how much you're influenced by them. And I think that's what's behind it. Now, by the way, I just want to point out, the New Testament actually reverses this. It says, I actually want you to go out and eat with the Gentiles. And I want you to eat what the Gentiles are eating. Get up, go kill it, and eat it. And Peter gets rebuked by Paul when he stops. And he calls him out for his hypocrisy because he's not eating with the Gentiles. And so I know that's challenging for us because we say, wait a minute, there's a change? Something changed? Something's different? How do we know which ones are there others that changed? And the answer is, there are categories that people smarter than me have come up with, and I think they're very helpful. Three categories for how to read and think about the various laws that we see here in Leviticus. Those three categories are these. There's the ceremonial laws, there's the civil laws, and there's the moral laws. And these are in addition to the dietary laws. But let me just kind of highlight and describe these three. First of all, there's the ceremonial laws, are those laws that that specifically relate to the priests, what the priests are to wear, uh, the, the sacrifices, the temple. These are ceremonial laws, which the New Testament tells us have been fulfilled in Christ. And therefore there's no more priests, and therefore there's no more sacrifices, and therefore there's no more temple. And the New Testament actually instructs us as Christians uh, not only that we're not required to do these things, which were prescribed in Leviticus, but actually if we were to do them, we would be wrong. If we were to bring an animal sacrifice in here and sacrifice it this morning, we would be wrong. And you should fire me if I ever lead you to try to do something like that. Right? Something's changed. Something's different. A law that was once prescribed... It would actually be sinful if we were to do it today. So we do have to recognize something's changed, something's different. Secondly, there are civil laws. Civil laws are those laws that specifically relate to Israel as a theocracy. A theocracy is a form of government, it means it it has a king, but the king is God. It's not a monarchy, like our friends across the pond who have a new king and a new prime minister in one week, right? It's not a monarchy. It's a very unique form of government. No other nation has had this. God tells the people what to do and how to live. How do you know if you're dealing with a civil law? You usually know because there's usually a punishment that's connected with it. There shall be no mediums. And if there are, you stone him to death. That's a civil law. It's prescribing the punishment that comes for the medium or what we might call the fortune teller. A child curses his mother or father, he's to be stoned to death. I'm going to recommend you not write your congressman and say, Congressman, I think we ought to, these are Old Testament laws. It's God's word. We need to start stoning kids who are not obeying their parents. We're not doing that. Why not? We don't want our country to follow those laws. We we are not a theocratic nation. We're a republic. And uh, Israel was a theocratic nation. It's not today, by the way. Things have changed. It's different now. But it's important, and I'm not, I don't mean by this that cursing parents is now all of a sudden permissible. right? Cursing parents is still a law of God that is still considered sinful. So there's a principle, there's a truth, there's a law that certainly continues. But I'm talking specifically about the consequences, the punishment. Let's me know that's a civil law for Israel, a theocratic nation which we are not. And then there are moral laws. Those laws... Moral laws are those laws that continue to be expected of God's people. They continue to be expected of God's people to follow, to do them. You say, well, how do I know? How do I know if I'm reading a law in Leviticus if it's a moral law? Well, sometimes it might, it might be challenging, it might be difficult. And we don't just do this flippantly, well, I think this one and not that one. No, it can be challenging, but let me tell you an easy method for, for I think getting really close to figuring out if this is a moral law that continues today, is it repeated in the New Testament? If it's an instruction and a command that's repeated in the New Testament, you have really good reason to think this is a moral law that continues to be expected of God's people today. And I also want to tell you, most of these are clear and obvious and there's not a lot of debate about them. I would say the vast majority. Very few of the laws are really, you know, lead themselves to great deals of debate. You know, you still got do not murder, do not lie, do not steal, love God, love your neighbor, no idols, no other gods. And we are called to continue to follow these laws. And this is what it means to grow in holiness. How do I grow in holiness? How do I become more holy? If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. If you love me, you'll do what I've told you. If you love me, you'll do what God's told you. That's how you become more holy. And that's the expectation that God's people are growing in holiness. I've got uh, the Pikes Peak Ascent is coming up this Saturday, and I'm signed up to, to run in it, to go to the top of Pikes Peak. And I'm planning to do it, hoping to do it. You know, we'll see. You never know what might happen. This is my fourth year to go either do the ascent or the marathon. And uh, so I've been training. I've kind of figured out how to train that's best for me. And I'm probably not a great example to follow. But, you know, part of the training that I think virtually everybody does is you've got to increase your mileage you got to increase what you're doing. You've got to be on your feet for a long period of time and get your body used to that. And so there's been a progression. You know, by the end of June, my long run was something like 12 miles. And I did 12 miles a number of times. And then by the end of July, my long distance was 20 miles. So I got up to 20. In the past month, I've been trying to get some work done up on the mountain because it's good to be up in you know altitude and get your body used to that. And I was feeling really good about myself. You know, 20 miles, that's impressive. Until I met literally an Olympic athlete who lives in my neighborhood this past week. And I was asking him about his training. And he was telling me as he ramps up, he does 20 miles every day. In addition to all kinds of other training that he does. And I just said, okay, you know, I, I, I've run a time or two also. You know." <laughs> um, but the point is, there's an expectation of a progression. He doesn't start like that. He doesn't start out with the ability to run 20 miles every day. He builds up to it. And he was telling me about that progression. Here's the point. If that's what's necessary and that's what's expected of a person who's going to do a significant event, a marathon or pike's peak ascent, how much more so is it the expectation that God's people are progressing? That God's people are becoming more and more holy? Another way you could say it, more and more like Christ. Right? Are you more holy today than you were a week ago? We should be. Are we more holy today than we were a year ago? We should, that's the expectation. Like that, that's, the, that's, the, that's what it means to be a Christian. We are growing in holiness. We are becoming more like Christ. So here's my question for you. What is the next step that you need to take in, in your development, in your training schedule? You know, you, Every one of us has a next step we need to take. What is it for you? Maybe for some, it's something you need to cut out of your life. Maybe something you need to start doing less of Maybe for some, it's literally cut it out, like stop, put it to death, go to war and crucify the deeds of the flesh. Perhaps for some, it's, you need to add more to your discipline, your schedule, your routine. You need to start doing the spiritual disciplines, getting in God's Word, praying, uh, joining with God's people in worship and community and Bible study. Um, this is what it looks like. We're called to holiness. What does that mean? Becoming more and more pure more and more holy, more and more like Christ, and more and more passionate about making God known as the holy king that He is. And this brings us to the third point I want to make and draw out from the book of Leviticus, and that is God makes us holy. It would be a mistake if we were to think God just gives us these laws, and as long as we just do them, then we just kind of mechanically and automatically become holy, and then we get God's blessing. It just doesn't work like that. It's more uh, powerful than that. Um, There's something deeper going on here. Listen, for example, to Leviticus chapter 20, verse 8, where he says, Keep my statutes and do them. I am the Lord who sanctifies you. Notice he says, I'm the one who sanctifies you. You don't sanctify yourself. You don't make yourself holy. I sanctify you. So God says, you do them. You do the things I've told you to do. And I am the one who will purify, sanctify you. right? And, and, and he's going to do that. He will do that. And here's a quick spoiler alert, by the way. The Mosaic Covenant is not going to accomplish that. It's not going to purify the people. It's not going to change them. It's not going to make them holy. God is giving them this Mosaic Covenant. And by the way, Paul makes the point, it comes way after the promise. The promises are made to Abraham. That's what's of ultimate significance. God gives this Mosaic Covenant to them, the system to them, hundreds of years after the promise. And Paul says the Mosaic Covenant is a tutor. It's a guardian. And it's guarding God's people and it's leading them and pointing them ultimately to Christ. And He's the one who can make us holy. He's the only one who can make us holy. The system itself, the Mosaic Covenant itself, reveals its own inability. It reveals its own weakness. It's from God. It's God-ordained. It's glorious in that sense. But even the system He gives us intentionally, because it came after the promise and it's leading. It's a tutor leading us to Christ. It's intentionally showing us it's pointing to something greater. Because there are these inherent weaknesses. For example, there's this constant sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice. If you read the book of Leviticus, you say, oh my goodness. I mean, how much blood is shed here? How many animals die here? Over, over thousands of years. I mean, this is, I don't know what the number is. Millions? Billions? Why? Because the blood of bulls and goats can't ultimately take away human sin. It can't do it. So what? So they just continue. And there's a weakness with the priests. The priests themselves, first of all, they have to offer sacrifices for themselves before they can for the people because of their own sin. And, and even then, there's the moral example. Like Many of the priests follow the pattern of Aaron's sons. And they're not morally exemplary people. We're going to see that as we go. And by the way, they die; they have to be replaced, constantly replaced. The whole system, the whole mosaic covenant, is saying something more is needed, and God's giving it to us for that purpose to tell us that something more is needed, and it's not something more, someone more, and that someone is Jesus Christ. And the Book of Hebrews makes this powerfully clear. And I wish I could read Hebrews 7 through 10, but we don't have time. So you can read it this week as you're also reading the book of Numbers in preparation for next week. Let me just point out one great passage Hebrews 10, verses 10 through 14. Listen to this. Jesus is powerfully greater than Moses and the Mosaic covenant. Hebrews 10, verses 10 through 14. We have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Hebrews 10, it says he sat down. Why does it say that? Because it's finished. He finished it. He finished the salvation that God had planned before the foundation of the world. Therefore, no more temple. Ever. Therefore, no more sacrifice. Ever. Therefore, no more priest. Ever. Jesus sat down. It is finished. And it's the perfect sacrifice. It was once for all. It's not endless. It was once. Once for all. And that's it. It is finished. And He didn't have to make sacrifice for Himself first. Because He was perfect. And when His blood was poured out, it was the blood of humans. It was the blood of Adam. It's the blood that runs through our veins. It's not animal blood. The blood of bulls and goats cannot take away sin. Only the blood of Adam. Jesus has the blood of Adam coursing through His veins. Therefore, He can be our substitute. Therefore, His blood can atone for our sin. His, his blood can cover us. That's why He had to be made like His brothers in every way, the author of Hebrews says. And, and, and therefore, He is now standing, seating, seated at the right hand of God, able to intercede for us because He has entered into heaven. The author of Hebrews makes this clear. Not a tent. Not a tent that was temporary. that had to be taken down, put up, take down, put down, put up. The priest entered into that. A tent. The author of Hebrews says it was a shadow. A shadow of the substance. A shadow of the real. What's the real? Heaven. Jesus entered heaven itself after making this once-for-all sacrifice and he sat down. And right now He is there at the Father's right hand, continuing to work, by the way, continuing to have the blood of Adam coursing through His veins, there as our mediator, our priest, interceding for us so that we can stand and live before a holy God. Jesus has done this for us. I think this verse 14 is so powerful. Listen to this. Hebrews 10.14 He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. He has perfected. You can be perfected for all time. If you will go to Jesus and trust in Him and His sacrifice for you, you can be perfected. In other words, washed white as snow. Clean, pure, so you can stand before a holy God. You can be perfected. That's the best news I can give you today. You can be perfected because of Christ the High Priest. But listen again to Hebrews 10.14. He has perfected for all time. Who? Who? those who are being sanctified. He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So this is not, He has perfected me, therefore I can go do what I want. This is not, He has perfected me, therefore I can live however I want. That would be to have the mentality of Aaron's sons who were consumed by the fire because they presumed on God's grace. He has perfected for all time who? Those who are being sanctified. So you have to be being sanctified. It's how God prescribes it. You don't get to come on your terms. You come on His terms. It's not a question of do you like it or not or how do I feel about it. This is God's prescribed terms. You can be perfected for all time because of Jesus Christ. Come to Him and believe on Him. But if you do, you're also going to continue the process of being made holy and being made more like Christ. And by the way, it's not you doing it. You're certainly called to To be holy as he's holy. But guess what? God's going to put his spirit in you. You know what his spirit spirit is called? The Holy Spirit. Why is he called the Holy Spirit? Because his primary role is to make you holy. And the Holy Spirit's good at his job. So he will be making you holy. And if he's not, that's more of an indication of you and not him. And then you have to come back and say, am I really perfected for all time? Because he has made perfect those who are being sanctified. So be holy. Just as He is holy. And make Him known as the holy King that He is. Let's pray.